0: One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls His disciples to follow Him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. For the rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians if you have them. It's in the New Testament. Uh, You go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then um, Acts, and then Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, there are three on that back table. That's our gift to you. Go grab one. You can either grab it now or later, but we want you to leave with that. Uh, But if you don't have it in front of you for whatever reason, it's also in your order of worship. It's really good to have the Bible in front of you, though, as we're doing this, because it would be really easy, especially with what we're talking about today, to think that I'm just making all this up or that the church is just making all this up. And it's going to be really important for us to see that this actually comes from the scriptures, okay? Now, um, let's be just upfront with some stuff. Christians do weird things, right? If you don't think that Christians do weird things, it's probably because you're a Christian and you don't realize that you're weird. Uh, But we are, and it's okay. The very fact that you are here instead of at home eating a pastry and sipping coffee is quite strange in our culture. It's no longer expected that this is what you do on Sunday mornings. Um, We've been looking at many of those weird things this summer, right? Things like praying and reading the Bible, giving our money away. I mean, who does that? Uh, These are some of the core things that Christians do because of what we believe. And today, this morning, uh, we come to a topic that can only add to that because we're talking about sexuality. Now, for most of us, if not all of us, the idea that Christianity has anything to say about sexuality other than no is um, bizarre, right? That, that just seems to be what, what all that we ever hear. But the Christian faith is holistic. It's meant to impact all of our life, including our sexuality. So that's, as, as we go to the scriptures this morning, we come asking the question then, what does it mean to walk and sexual wholeness. Uh, if you're in your place in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, let's, or sorry, chapter 5, let's stand in honor of God's word. Chapter 6, what am I thinking? Uh, and we'll be reading chapter 6 verses 12 through 20. Uh, let us be mindful as we do this. This is God's word, friends. It is not something we chose for ourselves. Uh, a convenient word for us, it actually challenges all of our lives and it lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. Then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word given so that we might flourish in our frustration, in our boredom, even in our anticipation. Let us, let us go before the Lord and ask his blessing. Lord, as we come before you this time, we ask, uh, especially with this topic, that you would soften our hearts, help us to hear from you, to not hear what we expect to hear, but to hear from you. If, if you do not challenge us, if you do not change us, we will not be changed. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you come and open our ears and help us to hear your gospel so that Christ and his cross come to the fore and the one who speaks falls to the wayside. For you alone, Jesus, hold the words of eternal life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so some of you who know me know that I'm kind of a, I like to get cards on the table, right? I, I like to see what hand we're dealing with. And this morning, I think the cards that we need to put on the table are the, is the very fact that, that a lot of us in this room are nervous right now. We're nervous for various reasons. Uh, maybe the reason that you were nervous this morning is because you know that, um, that a preacher is getting ready to talk about sex in the church, and that just shouldn't be. Like, we just shouldn't talk about such things in church. It's just out of bounds. Or, or maybe because this is your first time in church in a long time, or, or maybe your first time in church at all, and suddenly all of your fears about what it is, the only things that you're about, are finally coming true. The only thing that would make it better is if it was a two-part sermon, the first on sex, the last about money. You know, and you're like, really? This is when I chose to come here? Uh, and others of us, are nervous because this is an area that some of us know, whether you're a Christian or not, that we are not in a good place. But in any case, no matter what it is, let's just be honest and up front. We're all a little nerve-wracked. Myself, no less than any of us. Um, and, And let's just get that on the table. But there are others in the room, though, who are not nervous, probably for not a good reason, because there are some of us for whom, especially, you know, look, if you're, if you're married here, this is, this is probably lingering in the back of your mind. You're thinking to yourself, this has nothing to do with me, because the only form of sexual brokenness you can think of doesn't apply to you anymore. I would encourage all of us just to stay checked in, because I think you may be surprised, okay? There's an outline in your bulletins, as always, if that's helpful to you, We're going to look at this passage in three ways. We're going to look at sex in our bodies. We're going to look at sex and the spirit. And then finally, we're going to look at sex in the Christian. Okay? All right. Now, before we get started, let me lay out some context for us. For some reason, and I don't know why this is, but for some reason, we have this view in our culture that the Bible was written to a Victorian audience, right? We have this notion that, like, the audience that first heard or first would have received Paul's letter wore their shirts buttoned up to their necks and, like, you know, and and hush hush about everything. That is simply patently false. That is not the case. The ancient Roman world, sexuality was more front page than it is now, if you can believe that. It was more on the front of everyone's mind than it is now. Earlier in this very letter, and Paul addresses. Uh, it's a matter of fact. It's in. It's in the the very last chapter. It's in. It's in uh, chapter five um, that that, it, like, a situation is going on in the church. In the church. Not in the marketplace. In the church that is right off of Jerry Springer. Right? Like, dude is sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? This is happening in the church? This doesn't even happen in the culture, and this is happening in the church? So you have things like that going on. Uh, worship, what we would call religion, in, in the Roman world, in the pagan world, often involves temple prostitutes. It's the way you would go to get your, to get your, um, to get your crops to grow fertility. You go visit the, the, the temple of, of Demeter or, or of uh, Aphrodite or whatever, and you would go sleep with a temple prostitute. And that was just normal. That was like, this is my religion. This is what I do. What's the big deal? And then, and then of course, uh, you had uh, wealthy men. Wealthy men generally had a wife to bear their children, uh, a mistress to go to parties with, and a concubine for their bed. It's so, a polyamorous relations, like sister wives, except, you know, it was just normal for wealthy men to be, to be doing that. And that was just kind of considered normal. And believe it or not, uh, something like homosexuality was less taboo then than it is now. Uh, it, was, it was just kind of more common. And so that is the context that Paul is speaking into. He's not speaking in, like, the, whatever we may think, like, this is shocking and antiquated and yada, 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 you have to understand... That it was no less shocking and culturally uh, uh, disparate for the ones who first heard it. Okay? Now, that's our context. Let's look at the text. Now, skip verse 12 for right now. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God's going to destroy both. All right, stop there. What, what, in many of your Bibles and the translations, you'll see little quotation marks around uh, st- uh, food for the stomach and stomach for food, things like that. You'll see them also in, in, chapter, or in verse t- 12 on some things. Scholars will tell you that what's going on there is that Paul is repeating back to the Corinthians some of their um, popular catchphrases. Right? Christians always have catchphrases. It's kind of the way we do things. Um, things like, uh, let go and let God. What does that mean, by the way? I don't know. Like, uh, just give it to Jesus. Like, we have all these little catchphrases that we use, and it's, it's, it's things that go across. This is one, these are ones that the Corinthians would have done. Now, the real question is, what does food have to do with the rest of this passage? Because the rest of this passage is not about food, right? Well, this phrase, th- these ideas that, that uh, food, for the bio- or food for the stomach, stomach for food, is getting at the idea that hunger and food, uh, like hunger is a biological necessity, and food is just meant to fill that hunger. And so food is, what, what you're eating is morally neutral. Right? You see that? So, and, and look, Paul would have agreed with that because you have Jews and Gentiles in the same congregation. Jews, culturally, they didn't eat certain things. They didn't eat pork. They didn't eat you know, bacon. They, were, they had all this list of things that they could not eat. And so as, as when Christ came in and made all foods clean by you know, one of the aspects of his work, they could suddenly eat everything. And so it was just, that was... phrase that probably Paul may have even given them. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. Okay? But do you see the connection between this and sex? Because what Paul is stating here as the position of the Corinthians is that sex is the same. And that, that should not be surprising to us because most of us believe that. That's just kind of the air we breathe in our culture, that, that, uh, that sexuality is purely physical, that it's like a hunger. It's like a, it's like a physical, biological need that is unstoppable and must be satiated. It's just, that is our normal way of thinking about things. But he counters that at the end of verse 13 with this phrase, but the body isn't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, fine, Rick, but what is, I mean, that's a really vague term, right? Sexual immorality. What, what exactly does that mean? I have some thoughts in my head, but what does that mean? Well, that's, that's a real good question. Because to us, the idea of sexual immorality is very vague, but to Paul, the word that he uses there is not. The word in the original, uh, in, in the original Greek would, would be porneia, from which we get our word pornography, but it doesn't mean that. Uh, porneia, in both the way Paul uses it, and in the wider Roman world, went, meant not an action so much as a, a category. It was a category. It was any kind of sexuality, any kind of sexual expression that occurred outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And so in our context, it would cover everything from, from uh, you know, like just like, uh, sex outside of marriage to pornography use. Cover all of it. It's a category. It's not an action. Right? And Paul says, your body isn't for that. It's for the Lord. Now, here's what that means. For, most, for, for many of us, whether you're Christian or not, we have this notion that our bodies really don't matter. That it's not really important. What is most true of us is our soul or, or some kind of inner part. Now, the body is just kind of maybe not neutral, but it's not really what's most true of us. And, but, but the Bible says something different. It tells us that God created humanity to be both uh, body and soul together, and that together, those things together make a person. That's what makes a person. It's not, you are more of a person internally, and then the body, you know, we're not, we, we don't believe what Yoda said, right? That, that it's not, we're luminous beings, and not this crude matter. Like, it's actually, the, the, the Bible actually tells us that, that we are made for, uh, to be um, enfleshed, embodied. And that's what Paul affirms there in verse 14 when he talks about God raising the Lord, that's Jesus, raising him from the dead, raising him to have a body, and that he's going to do the same with Christians. What he means is, is that if you are a believer in Christ, if you have, uh, if you have joined to Christ by faith, that, uh, look, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise your body. It's not like you're going to Woo, come up from the ground as this like spirit, your body will be resurrected. Your bodies matter, okay? In the Corinthians day, they would have said uh, that their souls matter, but not their bodies. In our day, we, you know, given all the various ways that we look at the makeup of a human, we don't necessarily, we may not think that, but what we do think is like what really matters is that I'm happy. Why do you care what I do with my body as long as I'm happy? Shouldn't it, isn't that all that matters? It's the same thing. What is most true of me, what is most important about me, is that I I am happy, that I feel fulfilled, and whatever I do with my body doesn't matter. But Paul says it does matter because we weren't made for that. Now, notice what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say is that we weren't made for sex. He says sexual immorality. And this is very important because the opposite, and oftentimes what is Associated with the church. Let's be honest. The opposite of of thinking that sexual immorality is, is wrong. The opposite of that is often thinking that um, that sex, or, or the opposite of thinking that sex is a neutral appetite. Sorry. The, the opposite the opposite of thinking that sex is kind of a neutral thing is the notion that sex is dirty, and this is what most people think the church thinks. It's a necessary evil to propagate the species, but ugh, you know, if we listen, God made sex. Now he made it for a context. Which we're going to get to in a second. But he made it. And after he made it, like he made man and woman, and he he put them in a context of marriage. And then after that, and after they were doing what they do, because it says the two became one flesh, they were doing what they did, he said, This is very good. It's very good. And that brings us to the nature of sexuality. Look down at verses 15 and or 15 through 17. Paul says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Would you then take the members of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? May it never be. Okay, or inconceivable. I don't know. It's it's one of those those words that's hard to translate. Let me stop there. Let me be clear. Paul is speaking right now to Christians, right? He's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, to people who claim to follow Jesus, who have been united to him by faith. Okay, now, a lot of times when we read this passage, we get hung up on the word prostitute, right? Because if... If, if you're real disrupted right now, you're thinking to yourself, Rick, I, that has nothing to do with me. I don't, I don't uh, have sex for money. I do it for love. Right? But you have to understand, in the, ancient, in the Roman world, there was no category called singleness. Singleness actually is an invention of the church. That is something that came from Christians uh, who, gave, who gave the idea of singleness, we can see in the scripture, great honor uh, and, and called it a vocation, a calling from God. But in the, in the Roman world, if you were a single adult, you were a prostitute. That was the only option open for you. That's, all, that, that's what it was. And so what he is talking about here is the only context that you could actually have sex outside of marriage. You tracking with me? All right. Now, this whole section about joining and members and bodies can be really confusing. So let me break it down. When he talks about members of Christ, he's talking about the Christian's union with Jesus. The, the Bible teaches us that when we place our faith in Christ, we are united to him in our very person. We are united to him uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in a real way that involves our entire person. And that, that idea of the whole person is really important, especially as we read verse 16. Like, look there real quick. Verse 16, he says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her? Okay. If what he's talking about being joined is about a physical joining, Right? Like, literally talking about what happens in sexuality. You realize what he's saying then is, do you realize that someone who is joined physically with a prostitute is joined physically with a prostitute? That makes no sense. That's not what he's saying. Uh, But what, how that is illuminated for us is by his quotation there. Right there in verse 16. He says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That is from Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of the Bible okay? In the second chapter of the Bible, it talks about um, God creating man and woman, putting them together in the context of marriage, and it gives you the first mention of sexuality. Now, scholars will tell you that in Genesis, what is being talked about is not simply the two, like physically, this is what happens in sex, but that what is being talked about is a whole life intimacy, being completely connected on the level of personhood, like the persons become one. A new mystery happens. This is why in the Old Testament, consistently, the word for sex in, that they use in the, in the Hebrew is the word yada, which is to know. To know. It's the same word you would do for knowing someone intimately. That is what it is meant to be. It's talking about an a, a intimate knowledge of another. But the problem is, when you have sex outside of marriage, it isn't about whole life sharing. Is it? It's not about sharing your whole life. It's, it's in a sense, it's about, it's about, uh, it's not a, it's not a physical sign of a holistically committed relationship. Most of the time, it's about self gratification. I, I have a need. I, I need to meet that need. Many times, sex outside of marriage says, "I want your body, but not your life." I'm willing to give you my body, just not my soul, not my promises. And it's not just for that. The same is true of something like pornography, right? It's using a person's body, but not wanting to have anything to do with them personally. I'll use you, I'll get what I need, and I'll move on. I've said this before, I'll say it again, and I, I, use it, I say this a lot when it regards especially that idea of pornography, but it involves sexual immorality in general. In the Bible, the division of body and soul, whether real or just in your minds, is called death. It's called death. And so telling someone, I want your body, but not your soul. I want your body, but not your life. I'm willing to give you my body, but not not be united to you in any meaningful way, is a death. It's a death. Paul is saying that God designed sex for something different. Now, Now, some of you are disagreeing right now because you're thinking, look, this is the way, Rick, I show my love for someone. Like, I hear you. Um, I think Paul would disagree. I, I know I would. Because love is shown when you are willing to give of yourself. Your whole self. Sex is meant to be a sign of your complete self-giving. Not just physically, but also emotionally. Legally. Economically. Spiritually. And so what Paul is saying here is that God designed sex not to be about self-gratification. But about self-donation. It's about me giving myself to another. A picture of a whole life given to another in the context of marriage. Now, that brings us to sex in the spirit and the uniqueness of sex. Look down at verse verse 18. Paul says this: flee sexual immorality. Now, I need need to point out the fact that Paul does not say, look, um, avoid it if you can. Or, um, look, this really isn't helpful to anyone. It, he says, flee, run away, like, get out of Dodge. Okay, now, this, this is something, this, he, then he says something very difficult to understand. He says, all of the sins a man does are outside of his body, but the sexually immoral one sins against his own body. Now, look, let's be honest, that, that just sounds a little silly, because you and I both know that there are plenty of sins that we do that, that have to do with our bodies, Right? We may abuse ourselves, uh, we may uh, uh, abuse drugs or alcohol that, that abuses our body. We may just, um, you know, I mean, heck, suicide is killing our own body, right? So what, what is he meaning there? Um, here's what he means and why he says to flee sexual immorality. Remember, the Corinthians believed that the body didn't matter. Of course they believed this. All Greek people believed that because all Greek people, for the most part, followed Plato, And the philosopher Plato believed that what was real, what was most real, belonged in some ethereal realm he called the realm of the forms. And all of this down here was but a shadow. And so what was really important was for us to better reflect the realm of the forms. And so this, this did really matter. And we had different, there were different offshoots of that and ways of coming up with that. And so of course the Corinthians didn't believe that their bodies matter. And so what they were, what Paul is speaking to has to do with the fact that When he talks about the body, he's not talking about the body as distinct from your person. We are an embodied person. God designed sex to be a physical picture that helps foster what it points to. Let me flesh that. He designed it to be a physical sign that actually helps to foster the thing that it's pointing to and signifies what's going on in a marriage relationship. Now, think with me about the biblical picture of marriage. Please try and erase whatever cultural assumptions you have of it. And think with me about the biblical picture of marriage. Because in the Bible, this is what a marriage is about. Two lives joined together with complete intimacy. A complete knowing of the other person. There is nothing about the other person. You may learn things as time goes on, but you know their stuff. You know everything. You know where they they fail. You know where, where they have great beauty? You see all of their imperfections, their flaws, and their good sides. And, and they are in front of you, they are completely exposed without shame. It is about mutual delight. Me giving myself to see my wife flourish, my wife giving herself to see me flourish in, in kind of this mutual trying to outdo one another in, in trying to uh, see the other flourish come to enjoyment and delight and then finally a a, a relationship that should end in rest. That is the exact same thing that is meant to go on during sex. Two people completely exposed before one another without shame, only wanting to, giving themselves to see the other delighted and then resolving in rest. It is a beautiful picture of what a marriage is meant to be. And this is why Paul makes a qualitative difference between sexual immorality and other sins. Because of what sex is meant to be and to do. Because it isn't about you, it's about the other. It isn't about pleasure, ultimately. I mean, praise God that's involved, but it's not about pleasure ultimately. It's about intimacy and it's about delight in the safety of a committed relationship, a committed legal binding to one another by the promises of marriage, which means that Paul is saying that sex is to be about self-giving and not about self-gratification. It's to be about self-giving and and not self-gratification. And in light of this, Paul says, avoid sexual immorality at all costs. And that comes in verse 19. He's talked about uh, sex in our bodies. and then he talks about sex in our union with Christ. Now he talks about sex in, the Holy, in literally, uh, the Holy Spirit by talking about God's temple. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit you have received from God? You are not your own. All right, listen close because it's important. Some of us here are probably thinking right now, especially if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know me from Adam, right? You're like, why is this dude talking to me about this? Why why does the church care what I do with my body and my house and my time? Right? Of course we're thinking that. The thought is this. I'm not hurting anybody. Why does everyone so care about what I do with my body? Paul answers that. He answers that question when it's asked by Christians by saying... Your body isn't your body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he'll say something similar in the next chapter, the very next chapter, when he talks about uh, literally, he's talking, right, in chapter five, he's dealing with that crazy Jerry Springer moment. In chapter six, he's dealing with um, sexuality outside of marriage. And in chapter seven, he deals with sexuality within marriage. And he says, uh, Spouses, don't you know your body's not your body? It's your spouse's body, it's not yours. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that sex isn't for you because you are not for you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have given your life over to his lordship. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, which means that you must follow him. Just as he lived for others and for God, so also we are to do the same. Seeking to serve them, not seeking to use them for our own pleasure. Now, all of this discussion has been a little theoretical, so I want to get more specific, if I can, uh, as we talk about sex in the Christian, first talking about uh, boundaries and flourishing. Okay, Go back to verse 12. We skipped over it. Go back to verse 12. He says this. All things are permissible for me. Not everything's beneficial. All things are permissible for me, but I will not be mastered or dominated by anything. Okay. Now, again, many of your Bibles have those quotations in it because this is another one of the Corinthians... Uh, catchphrases, all things are permissible for me, which is getting the idea that since we are forgiven in Christ, since since if you have faith in Christ, you're actually forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. What does it matter what I do? All things are permissible for me. I am free to do whatever enters into my heart. And Paul says, "Uh, ah, I disagree. But instead of just simply saying no, right, which is what the church normally says, Instead of giving us rules, okay, well, look, what is permissible is this, 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 and this, and what's not permissible is da-da-da-da-da. That's what we want, right? A lot of us think that's what the church gives us. Instead, what Paul does is he says, what I want to do instead of giving you rules is I want to change the way you think about this. Because rules are finite. Our experiences don't tend to be. There's always that gray area. What what about this? Paul says, I'm not going to give you rules. What I'm going to do is I'm going to change the way you think about it. And what he says is that being free in Christ does not mean that everything is good for us, nor does it mean that following every whim of our hearts means that we are free. Here's what I mean. The Bible is very honest about the fact that you and I, as people, all of us, are broken. Broken. Not slightly, uh, there, there might be a little need of a little, uh, I don't know, spruce up on the exterior, like broken. And the way it defines that brokenness is that we have turned away from God and are now by nature alienated from him. Paul will talk about it in another one of his letters by saying that we are, we, we are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. Jesus says the same thing. He says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Slavery, okay? What that means is that you and I, by nature, want nothing to do with God. We want to follow our own way, our own rules, our own desires, And that every little thing that comes into our hearts, we're like, I have got to go do that. And the only way I will be free is if I am able to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. And Paul says, You don't understand. That means you are enslaved. You are enslaved. Paul is saying, True freedom doesn't mean doing whatever enters into your hearts, even if that desire has been present in you for as long as you can remember. "I've I've always had this desire. That doesn't mean that following it will make you free. True freedom is living as God intended us to live. Saying that I need to be, to, for me to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, and that's the only way I'll be fully human, that's the only way I'll be truly me, is the same as your, your automobiles deciding tomorrow that, you know what, I'm done with gas, I'm going to run on alcohol. Just pour some rubbing alcohol in the tank. It doesn't work. It's not what it was designed for, Okay. Paul encourages us in this section not so much to follow rules, but to think Christianly about sex. And so I'd like to do that if we can. Because you see, our culture struggles with any kind of sexual boundary because it believes, and many of us believe, whether you are a Christian or not, we believe uh, that um, the expression of one's sexuality is essential to our personhood. For me to be fully human, for me to be fully me, I have to be able to express my sexuality. Why do you think that? I mean, what's self-evidently true about that? Nothing. What it's saying is, is that my humanity, what makes me a person, can be completely encapsulated around my sexuality. Sex defines me as a person. That's what that says. The Bible would tell us that if you were looking for sex to define you, to define your humanity, you were putting freight on it that it cannot carry. Scripture is telling us that sex is intended by God to be expressed within a marriage between a husband and a wife and that it is meant to express that total life sharing and intimacy that the relationship was meant for. And so this should help us, given those two things, define some of the boundaries a little more clearly. Not exhaustively, but help to make us think about this. So I would want want to do that if we can, okay? I know that's uh, that's going to make many of us uncomfortable, so just stay with me, all right? Any sexuality outside of marriage, whether that is personal self-gratification, I shouldn't have to use the word for that, uh, whether that's pornography use, uh, or any sexual act with someone we are not married to, is sinning against God, against the one we are with, with, or looking at, and ourselves. What does Paul say? Sexual immorality is against one's own body, even. But that isn't all this passage says. If we stop there, we miss half of the teaching, okay? So stay with me. In addition, any sexuality within marriage that doesn't express that total life-sharing and intimacy with your spouse is also sin. That would mean, okay, here are a few uh, ways that that can happen. Uh, that would mean bringing pornography into your relationship, right? Adding in another party into that one flesh union that you have. Here, let's, let's bring in someone else. Well, Rick, I'm not really bringing in someone else. You cannot divide the body from the person. That is murder. That is not what happens. You may think it's what happens. It's not what happens. It's bringing pornography into the relationship. It's about fantasizing about others while you're with your spouse. It's about using your spouse for your quote-unquote needs. Whether those needs are physical, like, I just got to get mine. Look, and look, many of us, if you're a guy in this room, for some reason, you believe this is true of you. Look, I just, it's, it's a need for me. It's not for my wife, but it's a need for me. And I just, no, guys. If you are using your wife to fill your needs, or if it's not physical, if it's more emotional, like, I don't feel connected, so I'm going to use my spouse sexually to feel connected, it's using them. It's sin. It means bringing an element of pain into your bedroom, or being emotionally absent and checked out, or manipulating and shaming your spouse into doing something he or she is not comfortable with. All of those things are outside of the design that Paul speaks of here. So let me make this very clear. This means that everyone in this room is broken sexually. Sexually. The Bible tells us that we are broken in every aspect of our being. There is not a single aspect of our being where we're like, oh, I'm good there. I'm good. I'm fine. Moving on. I don't need Jesus there. We are broken in every aspect of our being. We are all in need of grace. No one here can say of this passage, that doesn't really apply to me. I, look, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm fine. Paul says we are to glorify God with our bodies in verse 20, but we are all broken and in need of someone to help us. And that is where the rest of verse 20 comes in, where it gives us the motive, the means, and the comfort. Look there. Paul says, you have been bought at great price. Now, that is slavery language, which makes sense because he already started the passage with slavery language, He's talking about I'm not going to be dominated by anything. This is slavery language. This is being redeemed, literally being purchased out of slavery, being bought at a great price. Remember what I said a second ago. The Bible says that we are slaves of sin. And friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to redeem us, to purchase us, to to purchase us out of slavery. He did this by living perfectly, by dying sacrificially, and then by rising triumphantly all for us. The scripture is clear. All of us not a few of us, not only those of us who, have, who, who kind of wear our brokenness on our sleeves, all of us have sinned before God. And that what we have earned for that sin, no matter what it was, is judgment before God. And so we are faced with two choices. We can bear that, or Jesus can. We can bear that for ourselves, or we can trust Jesus to do it for us. And if we place our faith in Him, we are redeemed, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power. We are redeemed from it and need not live in it any longer. Here's what that means for us. Many of us in this room uh, struggle with the fact that we use sex to deal with life, okay? We use it to get something, whether that is feeling loved. I I have this need to feel loved and approved of, so I'm going to give someone my body so I can get that back from them or whether it's, whether it's feeling desired, or whether it's feeling powerful, or maybe it's just because I had a hard day, I just need to escape reality and feel good for a little bit. We use it to deal with life. But the problem is, is that when you have to perform to deal with life, you have to keep performing to keep it, right? If you have to perform to get something, you have to keep performing to keep it. Which means that eventually it will go away. Sex cannot fill the longings of your soul. It cannot do it. It cannot do it. It was meant to be filled. Your soul was meant to be filled by God. And only Jesus can do that for you. But if you you place your faith in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, you have been bought. That's what Paul says. You have been bought at a great price. Past tense. It can't be taken from you. It's already been accomplished. It is the only means to have what you really long for. It is the means of what we want. But it's also the motive. Because Paul says, you have been bought at a great price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. The price that we have been purchased with was the very life of the Son of God. And just in case that's, that's language that's new to you, what that means in Christian language is God. This God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. God the Son became incarnate, took on humanity to live and then die to purchase you. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, if you are a Christian, know that your life isn't your life because Jesus bought it at a dear price. And like I said before, you can't have him as Savior and not as Lord. So it's the means, it's the motive, but it's also the comfort. If you checked out at any point this morning, I need you to check back in because this is the really important one. Many of us in this room carry deep shame because of our broken sexuality, don't we? For some of us, it's we carry that shame because... Um, because we wrestle daily uh, with both expression of and attraction to um, people of the same gender. For others of us, it is a string of lovers, either in our past or in our present. For others, it's, it's it's years of pornography addiction that controls you. I wake up, that's what I think of. If I have a hard day, that's what I have to get to. And for more of us than we'd like to think, it's because of how someone else has violated us when we were vulnerable and young. Because of all of these things, we feel dirty, we feel secondhand, we feel worthless. To all of us in this room, God's word says this. You have been bought at a price. I know what you feel because I feel it. I feel it just like you do. It comes at me when I least expect it. It declares that what I've done in the past defines me. It does not. It does not. What defines me, what defines you, what is most true of me or true of you because of faith in Christ is that I have been, you have been bought at a price. No matter what you were feeling this morning, know that God, knowing exactly what you've done and exactly what was done to you, know what, He knows both what you've done and what has happened to you, saw in you someone worth dying for. Your value and your worth are wrapped up in what God was willing to pay for you. Do you understand? That's the way things work. I have a friend who works in, in real estate, and he'll always say this. I say, how much is a house worth? He says, it's worth what someone will pay for it. Do you understand? Your worth is wrapped up in what God was willing to pay for you. You were bought at a price. You aren't dirty because Jesus has made you clean. You were bought at a price, and you aren't defined by a previous reality, by being a slave to whatever whim enters into your hearts, you were bought at a price. If God, knowing who you were and what you've done, what I've done, who I am, was still willing to put it all on the line in his very blood to love you and to love me, Wouldn't he be worth abandoning all for? Would you pray with me? I pray for my friends in this room, myself included. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to receive your grace, that are willing to hear what you have spoken to us, that are willing to accept um, your work on our behalf. God, everything, when we leave this room, everything around us is going to press on us to tell us that what your word says is a lie. And so we need your spirit to work in us, to transform us, to create a community of sexual wholeness. Not just saying no to things, but saying yes when, it's, when, when you have said to say yes and, and then living out of a, a different kind of way of being where we are willing to give ourselves for the sake of others in all of our lives, not just our sexuality. and Do this for the sake of your glory. Uh, do this for the sake of your fame that many would see and know that if such a thing is possible, it would be only because there is a God who redeems us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.